0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's funeral of Queen Elizabeth II following 10 days of mourning and intense media coverage both in the UK and the US as dignitaries gathered from around the world amid pageantry and rituals displayed in wall-to-wall media coverage. This has given Britain's new Prime Minister a break from dealing with the many crises that have been building for months while the ruling Conservative Party has been locked in internal power struggles. Meanwhile, the European energy crisis from Putin's cut-off of gas worsened with skyrocketing household energy bills that have yet to be dealt with. Joining us is Rob Ford a professor of political science at the University of Manchester, whose research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice and party politics. He is the author of Revolt on the Right, which examined the rise of the UK Independent Party. Then we'll examine Saturday's Trump rally in Ohio for US Senate candidate J.D. Vance, who was humiliated with faint praise from Trump who reminded the sparse QAnon-sprinkled crowd the candidate had previously said some bad things about him, quote, but now he is kissing my ass. Joining us is David Pepper, who served as chairman of the Democratic Party in Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and is the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. We'll discuss the possibility that in desperation from the legal jeopardy he's in for stealing classified documents and lying about them, Trump's embrace of the QAnon crowd at his rally is meant as a signal to the Department of Justice that he could unleash a storm of crazed cult followers in response to an indictment. Then finally, we'll assess whether Governors DeSantis and Abbott could be charged with kidnapping and human trafficking as more migrants are dumped on Vice President Harris's doorstep following the cynical trick DeSantis played on desperate Venezuelans who were lied to and deceived with phony Massachusetts documents into boarding a plane for Martha's Vineyard only to be used in a political stunt, which is a violation of the federal law against inveiglement. Joining us is Ryan Cooper, the managing editor at The American Prospect, He is the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And we will discuss his article, At the American Prospect, Republicans Used Huddle Masses Yearning to Breathe Free to Own the Libs. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is Rob Ford, a professor of political science at the University of Manchester, whose research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice, and party politics. He's the author of Revolt on the Right, which examined the rise of the UK Independence Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rob Ford.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II... uh, ended today early here, of course, in Los Angeles, early in the morning in your time around 5 p.m. And now, does it mean that the U.K. and the world gets back to politics? I mean, it seems like for the last 10 days, the media has been saturated, even here in the United States, with coverage of the royal funeral and all of the heads of state showing up. So, in a way, has this been a gift to the new prime minister Liz Truss, that uh, she at least had ten days respite from having having uh, to discuss the energy crisis uh, and household electric and gas bills.
1: Yeah, I mean it's I mean it's it's worth remembering the, the extraordinary coincidence of timing um, with all of this. Um, the Queen only officially inducted uh, Liz Truss in as the new prime minister a couple of days before passed away. So this new prime minister arrived, everyone was expecting a great scramble of uh, activity, this, this sort of major energy crisis unfolding here. And then all of a sudden, uh, the monarch who's been on the throne for 70 years, as long as practically everyone here has been uh, alive and can remember. And the whole news agenda comes to a complete halt. Uh, and I really have never seen anything quite like it all political debate about all of the issues that were crowding the agenda um, when when Liz Truss arrived just completely stopped. Morning and evening and midday bulletins are just all um, stories of the, the, the Queen and the transition and the accession of King Charles and everything like that. And that's, I mean, you know, there, there are very few occasions like this. And if you are a member of Liz Truss's team, you have to think, well, This is actually a chance for us to reset the conversation. The predecessor to trust, Boris Johnson, left under a major cloud. There's a huge economic crisis coming. Politicians don't normally get, you know, a chance to actually plan at all. They're constantly reacting to a crowded agenda. So that kind of 10-day breathing space may have given them a chance to kind of sort of plan out how they want to, set the agenda going forward, how they want to respond to these challenges, and also just create this kind of gap in the public memory between the incoming Prime Minister and the exiting Prime Minister. So in some respects, it's it's a kind of unique political opportunity. It's very rare that the news agenda stops for even a day, and it's stopped for well over a week here.
0: So does that mean that um, she was able to do any politicking on the side, given the enormous numbers of heads of states that, that have shown up? from the Emperor of Japan, the President of the United States, and uh, of course all the European royalty as well. It doesn't look like much was accomplished between the U.S. President and the U.K.'s Prime Minister. uh, Biden's more or less said that we'll talk at the U.N. General Assembly later in the week. So I think there's there's a little bit of a problem over Ireland, is there not, and Brexit.
1: Uh, well, yeah, that's still rumbling on in the background. And the, the Americans have had views on that in in the past. Uh, and there was a bit of kerfuffle about this. Uh, I mean, more generally, that this is another kind of weird sort of limbo zone type situation because everybody involved with politics will vehemently deny that any of this is going to involve any politics. It's very constitutionally and diplomatically sensitive. We're here to, you know... Uh, pay our respects to the departed the, the monarch, et cetera, et cetera. But the way international diplomacy works, if you get all of these people together in a the room, they're going to have conversations. They're going to arrange meetings. There will be discussions going on. And one would assume, again, this is an opportunity for Liz Truss to introduce herself to senior figures from lots of uh, the UK's uh, allies or countries where relations have been... Strained lately, including many of the EU countries, and the chance, again, potentially to press reset uh, a little bit in, in in a kind of informal way, but presumably they will be looking to follow up on that uh, as well. Um, the truth is, though, we probably won't hear much about that uh, immediately because it would be very politically fraught to be, you know, I mean, governments leak. But they have no interest in leaking anything like this because it will look really insensitive. So we probably won't hear about it, but I'd be very surprised if that kind of thing isn't going on uh, in the background.
0: But one of the problems, surely, is is in dealing with this energy crisis in the UK. I heard a report that pubs electric bills, thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, has the paralysis in the in the leadership of the Conservative Party for so long has that really delayed an opportunity to deal with the crisis they're going to have to get their hands around this and it seems like the public is hurting if you're going to go bankrupt paying your electric bills that's not good for the economy
1: yeah i mean the delay has not been helpful in in that regard um, because it comes after a very drawn-out contest which ran for most of the summer And essentially, both of the last candidates standing, who then had to try and get support from the Tory membership, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, whenever they were asked about this stuff, they said, well, we're going to make policy once we're in charge. It wouldn't be appropriate on such a big issue to say what we're going to do. So there was this huge question mark. We knew the winter was coming. We knew that the bills were going to be horrific. Basically, anybody... Who you know, knew their stuff in this area? Energy economists, macroeconomists, were saying this is completely unsustainable. They're going to have to do something big. And then <clears throat> Liz Truss made her announcement about the broad outlines of the policy on the afternoon that uh, on the afternoon of the day that, uh, that the Queen died. And the Queen's death was announced about three hours after her policy was announced. So there was no chance to scrutinise. There was no chance to give any details. Now, in a sense, that's that's good for her at least when it comes to you know the ordinary household consumer because they kind of know that a big price cap is coming. That's what she announced that the prices are going to be frozen where they are, so people don't have to worry about the bills zooming upwards, which is what everyone was worried about. But in terms of like you say, small businesses, pubs, shops, uh, you know the, the the high street and so on, the details of what they're getting haven't even been announced yet. That that's apparently coming. On Wednesday, but now they're getting stuck in uh, another kind of uh, knot in the political calendar because we're about to have party conference season, and traditionally Parliament doesn't sit in party conference season because obviously all the MPs want to get away and meet their party members and make policy and so forth. So they now have three days, I think, from from now until Friday, in which they try and rush through a whole heap of stuff before everyone runs away to party conferences and then everything is on pause again uh, for a couple of weeks. So, we're going to, it's a very weird kind of staccato feel to politics here at the moment. Great long periods of inactivity, then a few days of frenetic activity, and then another period of inactivity, and then probably another frenetic period of activity when they get back. Because whatever they do in the next few days, it won't be enough to sort of settle everything. There'll be more stuff to do when they get back again. So, yeah, it's a very weird moment and obviously quite worrying for a lot of
0: people. And again, I'm speaking with Rob Ford, who is in the UK, where he's a professor of political science at the University of Manchester. His research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice, and party politics. And he's the author of Revolt on the Right, which examines the rise of the UK Independence Party. But given that months went by without any dealing with this growing problem of uh, energy crisis, was anything done about... I mean, at its heart, it's about supply and demand, isn't it? So is 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 the UK government dealing with finding new, more supplies, or are they just going to have to spend a lot of money subsidising households who can't pay their bills?
1: Uh, no, as far as I can tell, they they did like very little over the summer, unlike most of the other countries uh, in Europe. Uh, the largest uh, storage site in the UK. Uh, was shut down, I believe, by Liz Truss herself in one of her previous ministerial roles and hasn't been reopened. Uh, we haven't, uh, you know, the, the German uh, Chancellor was over in Norway hobnobbing with the Norwegian Prime Minister, presumably to try and secure extra supply over the winter. We haven't done anything that we know about uh, with the Norwegians. And Truss's solution, such as it is, is essentially to throw huge amounts of money at this um, uh, with the idea that this will then be paid off by consumers over a sort of 10 to 20 year time horizon. But if there literally isn't enough gas available uh, to keep the lights on and keep houses heated, like the government has said nothing about that or what we will do or how supply will be rationed or anything like that. Whereas across Europe, there's been an awful lot of activity on that to prepare big uh, big consumers, industrial consumers, but also, you know, the, the man in the street for, for the troubles to come. So all of that could really come back to bite them. I mean, if we have like a serious cold snap in this winter and everyone in Europe is scrambling around uh, to, to, you know, to grab whatever gas is available, I suspect, thanks to our government's long summer of inactivity, we'll be right at the back of the queue. And I don't think voters are going to be very happy about that.
0: So is this an opportunity for Labour then?
1: Oh, the whole, the whole, the whole uh, crisis is a massive opportunity. Um, for Labour most changes of government in the country most uh, 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 times when an incumbent government is turfed out and replaced by the opposition tends to follow major economic crises that was true in 2010 when this Conservative government came in it was true in 1997 which followed the RM crisis in 1993 it was true in 1979 when Margaret Thatcher's election followed the various crises of the late 70s so that's the last three transfers of power so Keir Starmer has probably feeling very fortunate right now in this session that he happens to be the Labour MP who gets to oppose a government presiding over a major economic crisis. And all the evidence suggests that's going to seriously shorten your odds of getting into an office as the opposition. And all the polling fits with that. Uh, Labour have been posting regular double-digit poll leads. There's no sign yet that Truss's accession to number 10 has eaten into that at all. And for the first time... Since the global financial crisis, voters are saying they trust Labour more on the issue of the economy than they trust the Conservatives, which is a really big deal. That has often been Labour's Achilles heel. Even if voters say, well, their hearts are in the right place, they say, well, the trouble with them is they make a mess of economic management, so we don't want to vote for them. It seems now that this crisis may well be uh, hobbling the Conservative government on that front and providing Labour with a major opportunity uh, to, to, you know, potentially uh, uh, switch things around when the election comes.
0: Well, I didn't see any uh, in the coverage amongst all of the dignitaries. I didn't see the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer. Uh, oh, he was the, there, yeah. <laughs> he was there somewhere? Buried in the Yeah, in he, was, the ba-
1: he was there, yeah.
0: I see. Well, they had. I know they had the former... Prime Ministers of both Labour and Conservative Party sitting there, along with, of course, all of the kings and queens of Europe and uh, the Emperor of Japan and Sultan of Malaysia. The head of uh, Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince, didn't show. The King of Jordan, of course, was there. And somewhere in the background, there was President Biden sitting behind the Polish Prime Minister. So... I guess the leaders of the Commonwealth got better seats. Is that how it worked out?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, ultimately, I I, I don't know exactly how the protocol uh, works for these things. Um, They had this, I forget what they call it, the meeting where basically they they proclaim King Charles to be the new king. There was uh, all, all of our half a dozen former Prime Ministers, which is a record. There's never been half a dozen ex-Prime Ministers alive at the same time before, so that makes quite a photo. And Keir Starmer was sat right next to them at that. I don't know where he was sat today, um, but, you know, as you mentioned, it's quite a big list of bigwigs that have turned up for this thing. So presumably leader of the opposition, you know, has to go a few benches back uh, in order to accommodate all of those visiting uh, dignitaries. And I I don't think he'll mind that um, very much. I mean, ultimately... You know, if you're a leader of the opposition in a period like this where, you know, politics just goes completely off the news agenda, you kind of just have to accept that uh, and wait for your moment to get back into the sunshine, which will come in the next couple of weeks.
0: Well, in case of Lewis Truss, it may not be particularly sunny. It may be quite gloomy. But in terms of the idea that maybe the Queen Elizabeth II's death and the proclamation of King Charles III as her successor, might be an opportunity for people to rethink uh, the monarchy, both in the UK but amongst countries like Australia and others. I get the impression from 10 days of watching this, and by the way, you've been saturated with this coverage in the UK. It's almost the same over here. It's been a massive amount of coverage. It feels like the last 10 days have been a major, you know, endless advertisement for British royalty.
1: Yeah, it it's been it's been kind of weird. A, a colleague of mine who's Dutch and obviously the Dutch have a royal family too, he was like, Well, if one of our monarchs died, you wouldn't get this. Like, you know, the the, the British monarchy is kind of like the global monarchy franchise, you know, it's the global royal brand. You know, the, the level of coverage they get is out of all proportion to essentially any other royal family, which which I think is is very true and the the past the ten days or so have really underlined that I mean, in terms of what a switch of monarchs is going to mean for attitudes towards the monarchy in, you know, these various countries where King Charles is still officially head of state, you know, one one of the sort of um, residues of empire, so to speak, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, lots of other places. I mean, it's a really interesting question because, you know, the Queen has been uh, the monarch for as long as we've had like uh, opinion polling, essentially um and uh so we really don't know how much of attitudes towards the, uh, the monarchy in those countries is attitudes towards the queen versus attitudes towards the institution i guess we're going to find out in the next year or so i mean my gut instinct is many of those countries will use this as a moment to reassess and i wouldn't be surprised if we see countries deciding to switch uh, to a republican model because they'll say you know the empire is long gone uh we stuck with this because the Queen was a very impressive figure and there was kind of residual loyalty, but now we want to go our own way. But we'll see, I guess.
0: Well, you know, you got the example of Barbados, and I think some of the other Caribbean countries are also considering it. Australia had a referendum on on becoming a republic about 10 years or plus ago, and they voted against it. So it's hard to know whether King Charles III is going to uh, inspire countries to stay in the Commonwealth and have the king as a head of state. Uh, just in closing, is there any kind of reviews on on King Charles III in terms of uh, how he's handling things and what little we've seen of him? He did make a speech, of course, before he was proclaimed king.
1: Well, the, the initial uh, uh, reviews and polling seems to be very, very positive. In particular, the share of people who say they think he's going to be a good king, which was always rather middling, uh, has shot up um, uh, in in the wake of the Queen's death. And a lot of people have been giving him very positive write-ups for his handling of the transition um, so far. Now, again, how much of this just reflects the kind of halo of goodwill uh, around the departed uh, Queen, his mother, It's hard to say, Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the the other thing that that really went viral here uh, in Britain is there was this great big long article written about London Bridge, which is the code name for this process of transition when the queen eventually died. It's an extraordinarily complicated, detailed plan. And, you know, you you have to say like aside from the saturation coverage, uh, it's all gone extraordinarily smoothly. So from Charles's perspective, he couldn't really have got a better start, a smoother transition, lots of goodwill towards him from the public. I don't think there's any risk of any kind of a Republican referendum or debate here anytime soon. Now the question is going to be whether or not he can make use of that to kind of carve out his own kind of, you know, branding for the monarchy going forward. You know, we'll have to see. He, he, he's not coming in as a young man, of course. He's like 73, I think. So um, it'll be interesting to see what approach he takes to it.
0: Well, Rob Ford, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Rob Ford, who is in the UK, where he's a professor of political science at the University of Manchester. His research focuses on areas of public opinion, electoral choice, and party politics. And he's the author of Revolt on the Right, which examined the rise of the UK Independence Party. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining Saturday's Trump rally in Ohio for US Senate candidate J.D. Vance, who he humiliated with faint praise, saying that Vance is now kissing my ass. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Pepper, who served as Chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021, and is the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File, and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Pepper.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, David. And what did you make of the rally over the weekend in Youngstown uh, for uh, the Republican senatorial candidate, J.D. Vance, at which Donald Trump basically humiliated Vance by saying, you know, he, he likes me now, but he said some bad things about me, but now he's kissing my ass. I mean, that in itself is such a horrifying mental image of somebody kissing Donald Trump's ass. So... I just don't understand what's going on there. Is this going to hurt Vance?
2: Um, you know, that rally was so disturbing, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, but yeah, that part was was crazy that, that he literally has a Senate candidate and he's mocking the Senate candidate. Uh, that was, you know, if you're J.D. Vance in the crowd, think about uh, sitting there hearing that. Um, but but Van, the, the Vance-Trump relationship has always been bizarre. I mean, this is a guy who said he voted for Hillary Clinton. He texted to a law school friend that he thought Trump was America's Hitler, and now he's running around with him. But obviously Trump always gets the last word on these guys. We saw this with Romney a number of years ago. He, Trump, knowing all that, still takes a dig at him. So I, in the end of the day, Trump saying he supports Vance. A lot of Trump voters will vote for Vance because of that, even with that insult uh, but overall, you know, there's a reason why a lot of other Republicans were not at that rally, including the governor, who's the favorite to get reelected. Trump's rallies are getting so disturbing. And around the country, I st- see today still images of people with their hands in the air that look a lot like some really troubling moments in our world history at that rally in Youngstown. And a lot of the candidates, knowing these things happen in these rallies, didn't go but there's Vance sitting right up there, standing next to the president. So I, I think that he'll win, he'll get some Trump voters because people, and I've seen quotes, well, if Trump says to vote for him, we're gonna vote for him. But Jay, uh, but Tim Ryan has had a major advantage for the last six months with independents, up considerably with them, and even some moderate Republicans. And my guess is that that rally and that the optics of that rally Actually, also will lock some people into Tim Ryan voting to vote for Tim Ryan, even though they might have not have been locked in last week. So I think it's a mixed bag.
0: Well, the image that you referred to was in an historical context, clearly reminding us of, of the rallies for Adolf Hitler with the the one arm salute. Yeah. that's the QAnon salute with the finger in the air, uh, referencing number one. And the theme song that was played at the rally is the same piece of music that's a QAnon theme song. And their slogan, of course, is where we go one, we go all, and the one being Donald Trump, because they honestly believe. And he appears to agree with them. He wore a QAnon pin at a recent rally on his lapel, and he had uh, under the slogan which reads, the storm is coming. And the storm is the return of Donald Trump. And they thought the storm was January the 6th. That was also a QAnon rallying point.
2: Yeah. You know, I think actually this really speaks to how desperate Trump feels about what's happening down in Florida with that uh, classified information. I think he is he is worried sick about it. I think his actions and words on his social media platform show that. And I think he's clearly in this only... You, uh, it's dangerous to try and get into his mind too much, but I think he is trying to scare people like Merrick Garland into not wanting to do anything with him with that case. And I think this rally and fully embracing QAnon in a way that he has never really wanted to do before, he would be more subtle. I think he wants to show, hey, I've got some real stormtroopers in my camp that will do things that you you should be scared of. I think that rally was a real microscope into the mind of, of a panicked Donald Trump much more than it was about J.D. Vance or the other congressional people on that. It's it's a sort of a sign of he is going for the most sort of loyal and getting them worked up just like he did before January 6th to kind of show that if you go after me, I'm, there's going to be repercussions. So obviously, the response should be, hey, we don't care. The rule of the law is the rule, is the rule of law. But I think that's what that was about, um, and, and I think in Trump's world it was – he thought it was a good show of strength. The sad part is that that's an arena that Ohioans know I think holds you know under 10,000 people, well under, and it was very many empty seats. So I think it shows that, that – that you know. and by the way, one other little thing that Ohioans would have noticed that no one else would have probably – earlier in that rally – one of the candidates yelled out the letters OH. and In Ohio, everyone knows that you yell out I.O. in response, Ohio. This candidate yelled out OH and no one said I.O., which tells anyone from Ohio, there are not a lot of Ohioans in that crowd because that's what they would yell. They just sort of cheered. So that was not just a small crowd. It was a crowd of people, I believe, who mostly aren't even from Ohio. It's sort of like the old Grateful Dead uh, uh, concert goers, that's a crowd that I believe travels to follow Trump everywhere, and they're in the front row doing that symbol, not because they represent the voters that are going to vote for J.D. Vance, because these are the, the true Trump loyalists who go everywhere. That, that was not a crowd that, that responded like an Ohio crowd would to an Ohio cheer. So, I, but I think this really is a microscope into the panic he's feeling about what's happening with those classified documents more than it is about anything right now.
0: Well, there was also, of course, the usual aggrievement. And he really laid it on thick that he was a a victim. No other president has been so badly mistreated, etc. And he also went on to say that that we no longer have free speech in this country. And he claimed that this country is where crime is rampant, like never before, where the economy is collapsing. That's pretty untethered from reality.
2: Um, Yeah, it it is. I mean, it it but you know there is a group of people that's all they hear. They hear from him. They hear it on social media. They do hear a lot of it on Fox News. So, to, so that's the reality that he's in that world that he's sort of picking on. And here the irony is there was one of the Congress people that from Ohio said something to the effect of, "We always are picking up the messes left by Democrats." And you know I'm a Democrat, but my my I think the facts were on my side. For the last 20 years, it's always been the Democrats, be it uh, Obama. Or even Clinton or Biden, who have actually come into office when there's been a recession, the deficits exploding, jobs are being lost, and within a year the jobs are coming back. So, so I think I think it goes to show, you know, how much in that world, you know, it's just a different viewpoint. They don't see that Oh Biden became president with a massive with a pandemic that was still exploding, jobs cratering, and actually in a year and a half later, despite some Challenges that remain. Actually, a lot of those basic core uh, data points have turned around. Um, but but I just you know sadly, and it's very it's very disturbing. We are at a point where we're in two different views of reality, and there's very little overlap. And so when Trump talks that way with that, I didn't even know I don't know enough Q- about QAnon to even know that was their music. But when he talks that way to that crowd with that music, I mean they they're eating it all up. And I do think that that. It is a challenge for our country is how are we going to move forward when one side really has, I think, in the end, a very distorted view of what reality really is.
0: Well, that's the question, isn't it, about our country, whether or not how many Americans are becoming unhinged and believing in this bizarre narrative that the Democratic Party, uh, Satan worshipping child traffickers, you know, the drink children's blood. And believe that uh, the storm is coming, and that will. The storm was when uh, Donald Trump will, will be restored to his rightful place. So I guess the question that hangs out there is: that as a nation, are we becoming unhinged, or is, or did we witness in in Youngstown, Ohio, over the weekend, the death throes of a bizarre cult?
2: I, I mean, I think that the way that and I, I'm not someone who runs around criticizing the media uh, like others, but. I do think the way the media is covering it makes it seem like it's a bigger movement than it is. I mean, we have seen it, it's a you know, there are a lot of people in this movement, but the vast majority of people, we see this in polling, you know, do not agree with with what's being said. They they may not, you know, they may not all say Joe Biden's the best president either. But I think the true QAnon, you know, anti-abortion no exceptions. I mean, this is all pretty fringe. Now, Fringe multiply across hundreds of millions of people is still thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But I, 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 don't, I think it can be misleading in, in, in making people think that it's, it's, some, it's a much bigger group than it is. I mean, again, why is the, the moderate Republican governor of Ohio avoiding that rally? Because he knows that. Uh, why does Mitch McConnell not want a vote at the Senate on abortion? Because he knows that. he. Why did Kansas voters choose to support Roe v. Wade? Because the majority supports Roe v. Wade. So I do think that that there is a group out there that's only hearing a, a very narrow view. They're listening to Trump. They now believe, although they didn't initially, that the election was stolen. And I do think, you know, put party aside, I do think it's going to take some real leadership from people like Joe Biden and others, to navigate the the reality that we have this one group that really believes that all these things that aren't true are, and and is being triggered in ways that led to January 6 and possibly could lead to more things like it if we're not careful. So, I do think it's a challenge of leadership. It's a challenge for you know law enforcement and our criminal justice system how do we deal with this so it doesn't become you know more violent more troubling than it's been because that's the risk that even if a, even if it's a small group sufficiently triggered that small group could do a lot of damage and i think that's obviously a concern that we'd be foolish not to really you know acknowledge and try and proactively think through how we're going to deal with that even if the groups and numbers are small in the end
0: So back to J.D. Vance. Of course, he's a protege of Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley billionaire, who's also funding the Blake Masters race for Senate in Arizona, which is not going well. Uh, He's running out of money, and McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, doesn't want to... (laughs) He basically said to Thiel, why don't you pay for it? Why should we pay for it? What's happening in Ohio? Because the humiliating way that Trump just spoke about him is just so harmful to anybody that could be in yeah. represent a state or be any kind of leader because you ended up asking yourself, How could Ohio voters vote for a brown nosing
2: toady? Yeah, you know, this is the seat, and I, I got to know him personally, which was an honor. This was the seat held by John Glenn. So my attitude is, I, I can't imagine someone, as you just described, occupying the seat held by a true American hero like John Glenn. And I think to, to summarize how J.D. Vance is doing, Mitch McConnell is having to spend tens of millions of dollars in Ohio when he a year ago would have never imagined he wouldn't be spending that in Arizona or in Georgia. So J.D. Vance is such a poor candidate, performing so poorly, unable to raise money. No one knows him. He's underwater in the polls. That that it's a tie. It's a tie race, which is actually not what it not what anyone had thought. And so. We sort of have Donald Trump and Peter Thiel to thank for the – fact. J.D. Vance was losing that primary. He was generally in fourth place or worse until Peter Thiel and Donald Trump saved him. But just like Mehmet Oz and just like the character out in Arizona, Donald Trump and Peter Thiel have picked some really bad candidates. That's frankly made Mitch McConnell's life much more difficult. So it is tied. Now, that's leading to a lot of money being spent now attacking Tim Ryan. Tim happens to be a very good candidate. But the fact that it's tied is actually a big problem for Republicans. This was a race they didn't think they'd have to worry about. And the fact that they're worrying about this race probably means that we're in a better shape in places like Arizona than we would have been because all the millions here would have been there. And and you know, at the end of the day, if we manage to pick up a couple seats, we'll have Peter Thiel and Donald Trump to thank for it because they went around in the primaries and picked whatever using whatever, you know, whatever sort of old apprentice tactics Trump used in that show picked some people that turn out to not have been very good candidates at all, that even if they make it through will have drained a lot of money from other states where the Republicans actually would have rather spent more money than they would in Ohio.
0: But given what a poor candidate J.D. Vance is and how he's now been humiliated by Trump, why uh, is he tied? What's what's happening with Tim Ryan? Why shouldn't he be doing much better?
2: we are in Ohio in the midterm, and we have the White House with an incumbent governor who's very popular. The def, and I by the way, I ran twice as a statewide candidate when Obama was in the White House. The default is that's a lo- that is a losing year for Democrats. The fact that de- that t- Tim Ryan is tied is a massive surprise because starting a race when you have the White House in the midterm in Ohio, you are starting behind. So. I mean, it sounds strange to say, because you're right, Vance is a terrible candidate. He's got all these problems. But you're supposed to be down by 10 at this point if you're Tim Ryan, and he's tied. And he's got a fighting chance to win. That is a testament to Tim Ryan being a good candidate and a testament to J.D. Vance being a bad candidate. If you had Tim Ryan versus J.D. Vance in 2018, which was a year that was sort of win at the back of Democrats, this wouldn't even be a race. I think Tim would win by double digits. But it's a midterm when they – when we have the White House, and that is generally, history tells you, a tough year for Democrats. So I'll, it sounds – I'm glad we're tied. I, I'm glad we're not behind because typically that's what you would expect right now, and I'm glad Tim has a chance to win. And unlike J.D. Vance, it's not because of Peter Thiel dumping in millions or someone else. It's because Tim Ryan is running a hell of a campaign – Fueled almost entirely by grassroots supporters giving ten and twenty and thirty dollars, as opposed to millions.
0: So, just in the last minute, then, what is it going to take to get uh, Tim Ryan over the top?
2: I think it's going to take. He he's a fighter. He's got to keep fighting. They're going to hit him really hard. He's got to keep hitting back. And then, in the end, it's got to be that the voters on the ground in Ohio and across the country understand that this is not a typical midterm that our democracy itself in core rights, like a right to choose, are on the ballot and will be determined not by the 24 presidential election, but by what happens in just under uh, 60 days. And I think if we get the turnout that, that 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 would lead to, and women continue to be as energized as they should be about what people like J.D. Vance want to do, and J.D. Vance has said some horrible things, not just about abortion, but about he, he said at one point that women should stay in violent marriages, for example. I think if, if voters are focused and Tim keeps doing what he's doing, I think Tim can win. But it, let's be clear. It will be closed till the end.
0: Well, David Pepper, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you. Good talking to you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with David Pepper, who served as the chairman of the Democratic Party of Ohio from 2015 to 2021 and is the author of a number of books, including A Simple Choice, The Voter File and Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake Up Call from Behind the Lines. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of whether Governors DeSantis and Abbott could be charged with kidnapping and human trafficking. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, the managing editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of a new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The American Prospect is, Republicans Use Huddle Masses Yearning to Breathe Free to Own the Libs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper.
3: Glad to be
0: here. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's been a lot of outrage following what Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida did uh, by dumping Venezuelan refugees on Martha's Vineyard. And you would have thought that maybe he had second thoughts about it. But no, uh, Governor Abbott, who had already sent a bunch of refugees by busloads to dumping them literally at the doorstep of Vice President Harris. Her residence, the Naval Observatory in Washington D.C., well, Governor Abbott has done it again. He's dumped a whole bunch of refugees, including a, a one-month-old child. So, I should say, have they no shame? That's you know an unnecessary question. But do they think they're on a winning streak here, to Sanderson Abbott?
3: Um, I think they they believe that this kind of stunt is necessary for you know, conservative politics. As I say in the article, you know, when you look at Trump, he started, he officially launched his campaign with this speech where he said about people coming over the Mexican border, quote, they're sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And that, you know, immediately afterwards, he shot to the top of the polls and basically stayed there for the rest of the the primary. It wasn't the only reason he won, but um, you know, just indulging the conservative, you know, id of you know wanting to just inflict cruelty on immigrant populations—that's um, how he won. And so, you know, if these guys are going to challenge Trump for the twenty twenty four presidential nomination, they're going to need a record of similar, just egregious cruelty. To match, you know, Trump's record in the campaign and in office, and it certainly could work. But as far as the rest of the, you know, in a, in a national context, I think that's much more open for debate.
0: Well, then, you left with the question, Ryan Cooper: Is what percentage of the uh, country are a bunch of nasty trolls who gleefully like to make poor, penniless immigrants? desperately running from a hideous dictatorship in Venezuela, making their way across Central America and facing all kinds of dangers to get to a country that stands for the very freedom that we say we stand for and that we stand against the kind of Maduro dictatorship and kleptocracy that's driven almost 7 million Venezuelans out of the country. It's just depressing to think that There could be that many people in this country that are so
3: hateful. Yeah. um, You know, you can sort of read the polls on this in a number of ways, but I I don't think it's true that there's a majority of Americans who like this kind of stunt, you know, taking like women and children and lying to them. Judd uh, Lacum at Popular Info, he got hold of one of the brochures they had given uh, these folks, they were they were mocked up like they were from the Massachusetts government. And they were like, oh, you can get work permits and jobs and housing up there, all total lies. And they didn't even tell the Martha's Vineyard people that that uh, anyone was coming. They showed up at the airport and there was nothing. And they had to walk into town, which is, you know, several miles, uh, you know, where people were like, oh, my God, what's going on? And they were, you know, they, they were sort of catered for it you you can find, you know, people think correctly in the, in terms of, uh, you know, the way the system works that immigration is a problem. Um, you know, the, the, the system is, is backlogged. It's super bureaucratic. It takes forever to get, you know, documents, even people who are legally entitled to them. Um, but, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people who want immigration numbers to be decreased, but in terms of just like, you know, pulling a trick on people like this um, and sending them to a place with no support uh, on on false pretenses—I think that's a bridge too far for most people.
0: But isn't isn't it against the law though for DeSantis to do this because it was planned, as you point out in your article? There's a woman called Perla who reached out to these immigrants who were in a detention center in Texas where they were awaiting a hearing. So they were given $200, and they were given this phony letterhead from the state of Massachusetts promising jobs and stuff. That in itself seems criminal. There is a federal law against inveiglement. To inveigle means to entice, lure, and lead astray by false representations or promises or by other deceitful means. It's in the U.S. Code. I can't remember the number... But the long and the of it is, it seems like somebody ought to be suing Ron DeSantis.
3: Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like there's a case to me. Um, you know, in addition, you could say this is a violation of people's due process rights. If they have, you know, legal appointments uh, and you're basically disrupting these through, through some kind of lie, that would seem to be a violation of their civil rights. Also, according to the immigration lawyers, um, DHS officials entered false addresses for these folks, and they were uh, just random homeless shelters all across the country. One of them was even in Tacoma, Washington, which is like 3,000 miles away. And they're supposed to go and, and register at like an ICE office nearby. And here they are in Martha's Vineyard, you know, with the clear intention of being like, well, you violated your, your, the regulation here. Now we get to deport you. Right. Um, ICE is notorious for this kind of thing. And I think there's no question if this was just a random citizen that there would be a very solid legal case to be made. But, you know, when you're talking about, um, you know, governors and former presidents, suddenly the FBI tends to get cold feet about that sort of thing.
0: Well, these people missed their hearings at the Texas detention centers. So, and as you point out now, they're liable or vulnerable to deportation. But if you entice and lie to people and move them across state lines, it seems as if that's one, kidnapping, and two, human trafficking. Isn't that what happens to young women? You know, some sleazebag comes by in a big Cadillac and says, come with me to an audition, you're going to be a famous model, and they end up in a whorehouse.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, if if this doesn't violate about a half dozen laws, then, you know, then somebody is not reading the statute books correctly. You know, it just can't be the case that you can you can uh, transport people like this and not you know face any sort of penalty. What, you know, uh, kidnapping, I think, supposed to involve like forcible detention and holding people for ransom. But the inveiglement thing is this open and shut you know, and and possibly forging state documents or misrepresenting yourself as an agent of the government, I think that's illegal. You know, these folks clearly had no thought to whether or not they were, you know, running afoul of the law.
0: So you mentioned in your article at the American Prospect, Ryan Cooper, Republicans use huddle masses yearning debris free to own the libs, that it may have, this whole project may have started by Tucker Carlson, who seemed to have inspired this uh, idea in a segment he did some months ago?
3: Yeah, that's right. He suggested specifically sending, you know, um, immigrants, migrants, whoever, from uh, the border states up to Martha's Vineyard, because that, you know, it's like a kind of hate object on the right, because it's Massachusetts, for one. It's full of um, wealthy liberals, and especially a lot of liberal celebrities. The Obamas have a house there, um, a bunch of other, you know, prominent Democrats. And so their thought, I think, was that they would send these folks up to Martha's Vineyard and they would all recoil in horror. Oh, we don't want immigrants here. Of course, that's not what happened. Um, But, you know, there's there's this thought that, oh, you don't know what it's like, you know, having to deal with, immigrants, even though, you know, California is also on the border and I think has the largest number of undocumented immigrants of any state. Um, But that, you know, reality doesn't really intrude in the narrative there.
0: So this nasty little frat boy who comes from a wealthy, he's an heir to a wealthy beer family, I believe, Tucker Carlson, He's, he's getting his jollies by making life miserable for these desperate people. And he's got a huge following around the country that loves it. So then it becomes a question, a referendum in this country about the politics of hate versus the politics of love that were exhibited by the people in Martha's Vineyard who welcomed these people and showed up in droves to the point where they caused traffic jams.
3: Yeah, you know, they... it it. It didn't work in terms of the broader coverage, you know, because what Martha's Vineyard folks did, and they're mostly mostly not wealthy liberals at this point, you know, everybody's decamped from their vacation homes. Um, so now it's the, the you know, permanent residence, which includes, by the way, a large immigrant community of, of Brazilians, uh, you know, because you need a lot of service labor at a place like that. Um, but, you know, they stepped up to the plate. This is something, you know, to... <laughs> Democrats may be bad in terms of like housing policy. There's a really severe housing shortage on Martha's Vineyard. But in terms of catering for a couple dozen like penniless, defenseless immigrants who've been lied to, you know, they stepped up and um, you know uh, provided them with food, lodging, even a Spanish mass they organized for for people. And then of course they put them on buses to go to the mainland, uh, to Boston. And other cities, because that's where, like, services are for, for people and, uh, you know, where the jobs are and where they wanted to go anyway. You know, nobody wants to go to Martha's Vineyard, a small, remote island um, without any sort of, like, support networks for recent immigrants. But then the conservatives pretended like that was uh, liberals just deporting them, and that, you know, it's it sort of doesn't matter what happens, they'll just say whatever they want, and it won't penetrate the propaganda bubble because nobody watches anything but but right-wing media in that sector of the country.
0: Well, the prospect of DeSantis becoming president of the United States is so horrifying that this hateful little thug, who really is a fascist, I mean, every time you see him, he's surrounded by these big, burly cops in the background. He's clearly full of hatred, and he's, he's a professional troll. So he fights these culture wars, and that's his main platform. He doesn't offer much else except he decimated the education system in Florida. So the idea that you can end up with a president of the United States who hates more than half of the people, he has, absolutely detests half of the people in this country. How could he be president of the United States?
3: Well, you know, it would it it would be a, a disaster, and I guess it's it's sort of you know, up to the Democrats, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, there's little difference in my view in terms of how bad, you know, one would be versus the other. Um, You know, the fact is that in the 2022 midterms, the ability to have a fair election in 2024 is on the ballot. You have, uh, you know, big lie election deniers on statewide ballots and on local ballots across the country and in many swing states like my own state of pennsylvania where one of the guys who was at january 6 is running for governor so if these guys seize control of a critical mass of swing states there won't be a fair election in 2024 and then it's just gonna you know it'll be a, a question of power just raw political struggle um as to whether you can you know have some sort of a a, a vote or not, uh, that's even remotely fair. So this is the, i in my view, the sort of central defining question over the next couple election cycles is, is the American, you know, the United States going to remain a quasi-democratic republic, you know, I mean, with many unfair elements like the Senate and the Electoral College, but like, is there going to be You know, a procedure, a vote that everyone agrees on is legitimate. And or are we going to turn into a, you know, a a various shade of uh, right wing dictatorship? And, you know, that's what Trump tried to do. And I think that's what basically any Republican who is nominated for president would also try to do.
0: And it seems that uh, definitely the second most popular Republican in the country, short of Trump is DeSantis. So unless Trump is hauled off in an orange jumpsuit or in a straitjacket or chokes on a Big Mac, we may end up with DeSantis running for president. And if these elections in November turn out well for the Republicans, then they'll be able to rig the vote in 2024 so that DeSantis will win. So that is the American reality, is it not, just in closing?
3: Yeah, that's right. We're we're in a tight spot, but um, you know I don't think that this you know stunt is going to be a net political winner for Desantis, and I think that you know the broad majority of the country doesn't want this sort of uh, you know loopy extremism. People want things to continue more or less as they were, and also you know with the abortion question, you've seen that's dented Republican fortunes very substantially. And how did they respond? Lindsey Graham proposing a national abortion ban. So the stakes are clear. They're not going to moderate on anything to win votes. It's going to be doubling down and hoping that they can either cheat their way to victory or squeeze out an electoral college win like Trump did. Um, And, uh, you know, those are the stakes.
0: Well, Ron Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Ryan Cooper, who's the managing editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The American Prospect is, Republicans use huddled masses yearning to breathe free to own the libs. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
4: guy that lived next door in 305 took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine.